The Gospel lesson is from the seventh chapter of Luke's Gospel. Stacy and I today begin a sermon series that will take us up until Advent about all in. There are so many places in Scripture where we're not invited to just devote a little of ourselves, not to commit a part of ourselves, but it seems like over and over in Scripture, uh, all the people that the Holy Spirit encounters, that God in, encounters, that Jesus sits down and eats a meal with, there's an invitation to go all in. Today we look at a, an encounter that Jesus had with a Pharisee and a woman. Listen for God's word. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. How are you? I'm grateful. That was a response a friend of mine got from a colleague to that casual question we throw off all the time. How are you? It took me by surprise, he said, not the first or the second time, but nearly every time. Eventually, of course, I wasn't so much surprised as I was struck by the simplicity and power of that response. It wasn't the answer I expected. We usually expect little more than fine or pretty good or maybe a good day great. I'm grateful. To respond this way is to make a point that gratitude is not only a response to good fortune, it's also a choice we make. There are reasons for gratitude, yes, but we all know there are also reasons for fear and anger and frustration and grief and regret and apprehension. But we choose how much stage time to grant each of these emotions by giving them expression. And as we give them expression, we give these words power in the middle of our lives. Because here's the thing, gratitude, like all our other options, 
becomes easier to choose as we practice it. Gratitude like faith, hope, love, commitment, these are not inborn traits that some of us have and then some of us don't, but rather gratitude is more like a muscle that can be strengthened over time. I'm grateful. If you had a moment to scan the headlines before you came to church this morning, we see how scarce, how desperately needed more expressions of gratitude are. Accusations, excuses, venting anger, these seem to have a hold on us and our culture right now. We seem to live in an age of complaint. In this light, saying, I'm grateful, does not simply express our gratitude, but actually gives voice to this counter-cultural witness of Jesus Christ amidst a hostile culture. It has the power, I think, to shape those around us, those simple words, I'm grateful. It has the power to make room for a fresh expression of God's renewing and amazing grace. And all of this is playing out in this text this morning with this unnamed woman. She comes onto the scene in tender, grateful vulnerability, which provokes a wonder and a joy, but is experienced by some not only as an interruption, but as a disruption. Imagine the living room where Jesus came to dine. What was Simon the Pharisee thinking when he invited Jesus to dinner? What did he think their conversation would be about? We'll never know because no sooner have they taken their places at the table that the carefully composed scene is interrupted. The Pharisee who had already rudely ignored all the common practices of hospitality, denying the road-weary Jesus a basin in which to wash or a towel to dry his feet, This is the host way of saying, it's great that you've stopped by to see me. I'm so sorry you won't be staying long. And then this uninvited guest enters. We can assume, because it was the custom of the day, that this meal was being served in an open courtyard, accessible and visible from the street. So she simply walks in, carrying this jar of alabaster ointment She sees Jesus, she's overcome with emotion, she starts to weep, she kneels at his feet weeping, she loosens her hair, she dries his feet, she opens the jar and anoints his feet with this ointment. This is a lot to experience in the middle of a dinner party. We... We want to hold, I think, in our lives, her kind of embarrassing love at some distance. You know, just as we do when carefully composed scenes in our life get interrupted, we want to keep that at a distance, but Jesus will have none of that. It's an extravagant thing she's doing. It's a vulnerable thing that she is doing. It has its root in something that has happened with her before we meet her. She has been redeemed. She has been forgiven. She has been healed. She has been set free. Something. But her gratitude runs deep and wide and can't be contained. She is devoted to Jesus without a thought about how she looked or how she sounded or what other people thought about it. This is the picture. This is the face of gratitude. 
And Simon sniffs his displeasure. If Jesus was a prophet or some are saying, he would know who this person was, what kind of person she was, and Jesus would ask her to leave. Jesus' response is to tell this brief story about a creditor who forgave a huge debt and a small debt. Who is more grateful? Simon falls into the trap, the one to whom he canceled the greater debt. He reminds Simon that this woman, the sinner, had extended all the hospitality that Simon had neglected. And then the point, the sins which are many are forgiven, and she has shown great love, but to the one little is forgiven, loves little. Jesus' purpose is to get to Simon's heart, his locked, threatened heart, and open it up for God. Acting out of gratitude, Jesus is trying to reach every single person, the woman and Simon alike, and try to reach them with this extravagant love that he knows we can't live without. This love, this gratitude, it breaks all the rules when it exists in our life. It disrupts our carefully composed lives. It leads us to places we would never expect to go on our own because this devotion that is evoked in her knows no limits. We get in trouble when we try to impose limits on the grace of God, but we love limits. We love boundaries. We love having things contained so they can be controlled. But we do this at our peril. In 2001, the Boston Fire Commissioner ended his department's policy of unlimited sick days and imposed a rule of 15 sick days per year after which your pay was docked. Suddenly, What had been an ethic among the firefighters to serve the city, a devotion to their city, was replaced by a utilitarian paid arrangement under contract. In the very next year, the number of firefighters who called in sick on Christmas and New Year's went up tenfold. Such is the case when we replace grace with control. When it comes to giving to God, this woman is doing it from her heart. Simon the Pharisee wants to stay within the rules. A heart for God cannot be limited. A heart for God will try to match God's generosity measure for measure. You want to know how big God's love is, Anne Lamott has asked? You want to know how big God's love is? The answer is, it's very big. It's bigger than you are comfortable with. In most churches... Stewardship rolls around about this time uh, of year, and it's meant to identify the financial resources we need for the coming year. And this is important because the mission and ministry of this congregation is counted on by so many inside these walls and outside these walls. But, you know, the more we do it, the more we say, well, it's stewardship time again. It can become seemingly something we have to get through so we can get back to faithful living. When we do that, we have lost sight of gratitude, which is at the heart of this text and which is at the heart of all giving to God. What if stewardship had the flavor and the passion of this woman who interrupted the Pharisees' dinner party with Jesus? 
If we follow that woman who Jesus blesses, then sharing with others and sharing with God becomes the wholly essential disruption of our lives. There is no business as usual. It brings trust and gratitude right into the center of our life together. So, frankly, we don't have time to talk about anything else but trust and gratitude. Trust and gratitude. Eugene Peterson has noted about this text, Jesus is invited to a meal by a leader of the Pharisees. We are needy creatures. We need food. We need drink. We need shelter. We need clothing. Oh, and we need God. None of us are sufficient to ourselves, but it sometimes happens that as we find our way around our faith and we acquire a few habits of discipleship, the sense of need begins to atrophy. We know our way around. We feel at home. The Pharisees accompanying Jesus to the meal that day aren't thinking about the meal they will share with Jesus. They're engrossed in being Pharisees. They aren't hungry. They weren't hungry. No hunger means no need. No need means no trust. No trust means no relationship. No relationship means that we are in every way lost. Are we hungry today? I think this unnamed woman who interrupts this carefully composed dinner scene is in Scripture to remind us of our deepest hunger and what it feels like to live in joyful, unlimited, out-of-control gratitude. When we give to one another, when we give to God, when we give to the church, when we give to the needs of others, what we are doing is exchanging our control for gratitude. Anne Lamont again. I heard an old man speak once, someone who'd been sober for 50 years, a very prominent doctor. He said that he'd finally figured out a few years ago that his profound sense of control in the world and over his life was just another addiction and a total illusion. He said that when he sees little kids sitting in the back seat of a car, in those car seats that have little steering wheels attached, and he looks at the kids with these intent, concentrated faces, just sure that whatever moves they are making is making the car move. When he sees that, he thinks of his relationship with God. God, who drives along silently, gently amused at all of us and our little steering wheels (laughs) when God is in the real driver's seat. What if our lives, what if our giving, what if our focus as a congregation had the flavor and the passion of this woman whose gratitude was so great it just overflowed onto Jesus and interrupted that carefully composed scene? Tom Long tells of one student he had in a seminary class who is the son of an inner city pastor. One Christmas, the student was home from school and spent the afternoon talking to his father about ministry. He talked about everything he was learning in seminary, and the father talked about how hard it was to be a pastor in the inner city and the struggle for justice in and through the church in that hard place. 
As the conversation continued through the day, they decided to get some fresh air and they went out for a walk around the neighborhood. As they walked, they continued to talk together. And near the end of their walk, the father said, you know, it's almost dinner time. Let's call in a pizza delivery to be sent to home and it'll be there by the time we get back. So they walked over toward the nearest payphone, which are little boxes with telephones in it that used to exist only to encounter a homeless man blocking their way. Spare change, the man asked. The father reached deeply into both of his pockets and held out two heaping piles of coins. And he said, here, take what you need. Kind of stunned, the homeless man said, okay, I'll take it all, and swept it all up into his pockets. And then he turned to walk away. Before either group had gotten very far, though, the father realized he no longer had any change, to make the phone call to get the pizza. Excuse me, he called after the homeless man. I was going to make a, a phone call on the pay phone, but I just gave you all my change. Can I have a quarter? The homeless man turned around and walked toward the father and reached into his pocket and took out two heaping piles of coins and said, here, take what you need. If you squint, I think we can see the kingdom of God there. If you look with care, I think we can see a woman overflowing with gratitude, pouring out her devotion to the one who saved her. This account from Luke's gospel is inhabited by Jesus at the center of it all. And Jesus is surrounded by a woman who has clearly been wounded by life. And Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees who feel trapped in their life. And Jesus is in a culture where trust and gratitude are seen as such risky propositions at best. And the unnamed but persistent force in and around this whole text is gratitude. Given by God as the most unexpected gift, given by God into lives that are wounded, given in such a way that gratitude pays attention to all our wounds. Just saying we're grateful doesn't mean that there still isn't pain and woundedness, but gratitude offers even more life there. Gratitude given by God to people who feel trapped or stuck in rules or stuck in roles, or worried about their plans, or those who are trying to struggle and hang on to just a little bit of control. And here we are as a congregation this morning. Some of us wounded today, some trapped, many worried, all of us at least some of the time trying to hang on to some control. What I know from the Gospels is that this church or any church will not move into God's future through plans or heritage or history or accomplishments or resumes or aspirations, but only by our measure of gratitude to God and the way we are willing to lift that up and give that to God every single day. What if our living, what if our giving had the flavor and passion of this woman? I'll tell you, I think that takes practice. I don't think we just do this automatically. 
And I think it takes patience. And I think that that requires us to give a willing offering of our control over to God. Gratitude is not a command, it's an invitation. And it's an invitation that God never ceases offering. Gratitude, it leads to everything. Forgiveness, healing, hope, kindness, wholeness, and giving. What if stewardship this year for us was a practice of our gratitude to God? What if we start practicing gratitude and develop a, a greater thanksgiving-oriented muscle memory by responding, at least for the rest of this month, whenever we can think of it, to the question, how are you, with the simple but powerful, I'm grateful. That would come pretty close to the flavor and passion of that woman who literally poured out all her devotion before Jesus. Let's practice. How are you? You can do better. How are you? Thanks be to God.